Okay, welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 151 with my guest, Sheldon Hoyt. Sheldon is a registered nurse. He's also a pan player in the Brooklyn scene. Played with BSO, among many other bands in the, in the Brooklyn panorama uh, scene in Brooklyn. I met him in the Brooklyn Steel Orchestra uh, in 2015 uh, when drilling the band for the International Conference on Pan in Trinidad and Tobago. And given the, the events in the last couple weeks, and not just the last weeks, but the history of this country, sadly, um, folks have had a hard time talking about race, and understandably so. And it's exhausting to see people yell at each other all the time online, um, scream and yell on the news, about having conversations, and then all of a sudden having a conversation with a friend and having it be completely healthy and civil and thoughtful and awkward and um, inarticulate on my behalf many times. But what I want you to sort of take from this is to see it nothing as nothing more than an attempt uh, by two people who know each other relatively well to talk about these things. There are many ways to help. And there are many ways to learn. And this is the way Sheldon and I wanted to learn from each other. And so I'm grateful for him taking the time to sit down with me and be generous with his experience and his life. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation. I certainly did. Take care. Be nice to each other. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, buddy. In all seriousness, we could talk about MMA the whole time. I know, um, right. But um, I... I yeah, welcome to my podcast. First of all, I'm really grateful for you doing it. I've spoken with a bunch of folks from the steel band world, like Kendall and Mark and Odie and Jaren and um, just a, a ton of folks. And I'm mostly about steel band stuff. And every once in a while, I'll bring something up. I'll bring up the fact that, like for me, I have I'm very I'm grateful that I was lucky enough when I was young in high school to get tossed into a steel band. And the first, you know person with a different skin color than me that I ever met was Cliff Alexis and Ray Holman, you know, and I'm in high school in the middle of a cornfield, you know, and my, (laughs) my, my percussion instructor, Joan Wenzel, like she knew Cliff and so, and Cliff knew Ray and Tom Miller was coming in bringing Ray Holman to him. And, and it was, I grew up around different cultures in the context of the steel band. And, you know, I wasn't, you know, along the way you're not, I mean, you know, life is not always a simple thing and you're not yep. always aware mm-hmm. of what it is you're learning while you're learning it and no one ever told me I mean I grew up in a small town there were definitely stereotypes that were you know, you're seeing on the news you 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 hear people say random things but I was always like I don't know the two people I just met are nothing like what you what you say I think they should be like um I get to college same thing I play in steel bands and then I go to Trinidad um and then I meet Kendall Williams he's a student of mine um I work in he introduces me to the Brooklyn community. Specifically the when I say Brooklyn community, it's like a it's even a smaller niche in the steel band world. Um Yeah. Right. And then he asked me to drill, and I am a white person standing in front of a group of a hundred folks who aren't all <laughs> black. They're not all even specifically like they're from the Caribbean diaspora, but there's folks from Ghana. There's folk, you know, all over <laughs> it's not just Trinidad, you know. Um, Correct, right. And then I'm here yelling at you all about how to roll. And like, I'm in this position of authority where I'm screaming and yelling and trying to get a large group of people to do something. And 
that transaction just on a human level for me is something I don't take lightly. I'm aware of all of the like the most obvious things about all of us. You have darker skin than I do. Your hair looks different than mine does. You go to a different place to get your hair cut than I would ever go. Um, there's all those things that I'm aware of. And then you put on top of it the power structure in this country that has been in place for hundreds of years. How do I as a white person even begin to handle that responsibility with any sort of, and I, I always keep coming back to like, you know what? Sheldon's just a dude and he likes music. So why would he look at me that way? And All right. so whether or not that's the right approach, I don't know. It's just been the one that's worked for me. And right now in particular, I'm, I'm just depressed dude about the way I see people <laughs> from where I grew up talking about black people. And I'm like, I don't, I don't think you are coming from a bad place. I think you just don't know. And ignorance is a different thing than hate. I also see it on the other side. I see black people talking about white people. And I'm like, I don't think you, oh man, I wish I could have hung out with you in a steel band. Like, I think you might think slightly differently about a large group of people. I don't have an answer, dude. And I'm going to shut up now and let you talk. <laughs> but I wanted to reach out and speak to a friend and someone, I mean, I don't think, I wouldn't say that you and I are best friends and that we hang out on a regular basis, right. <laughs> but like, we're colleagues enough that I think this conversation about race in this country is something that you and I can wall off and I can ask silly questions of you because you know my intent as a person. And we can have a discussion and you can tell me things. And I, I just kind of, that's why I reached out to you. So all of that said, I don't, I don't have an agenda for where this conversation goes. Um, I watched your live. I watched your live stream the other day, um, and I really was drawn to the way you just spoke about you and your experience. Um, and I'm just curious. That's really that's the only. I kept being like, what should what should I ask? What question should I ask Sheldon? And I kept feeling like I don't want to have any preconceived notions about anything with this conversation. So. All of that said, I'm curious for you, where do you, how do you want to have this conversation and what do you want to talk about? Um, well, well, um, first of, first of, I'd like to thank you for reaching out and now hearing a little bit about your background, like it, it, it actually is enlightening because now it, it's, I'm hearing it from a different perspective from someone who grew up in a small town, um, it's obviously is a white town mm -hmm. and what you grew up hearing or learning about other people, you were able to come out and have a worldly experience to realize that what you were thought were actually just that, just a preconceived perception based on incomplete, inaccurate information that maybe your your family receive or your town or your city because generally we grew up in a world where um, my world definitely is way different than yours. Mm -hmm. But from what I, my experiences in life, we grew up in a world where our parents pretty much try to protect us and shelter us and shield us from certain things. Um, there's so many layers to what we're experiencing that and it's frustrating because it's it's it is a black and white issue but at, at the basis of it it is a black and white issue but when you go into the layers of it it's so much more so mu so many more 
aspects of it. And I, I'll try to, with the time we have, I'll Please try do. to get into a few of them from my perspective. Well, let me ask and you real I'll, quick before you get into it. Do you have a time limit? I don't want to, I don't want to push you, like you have to pick your kids up or something. I don't want to keep you. Uh, nah, not, not really. I have a, I, I have to work today well, at some yeah. point. <laughs> <laughs> you are also a registered nurse and you're someone that I've been, you're someone like pre, pre these current, the current issues right now around race. Like just when, when we were only really focused on a pandemic, like I was reaching out to you, I, you were, you were a huge voice online about like, Hey, this is real. You silly gooses. Like, stop yeah. saying, like, I'm here. I'm telling you, trust me. Yeah. So, um, you know, but so I, I'll try to say from my perspective, I, I was born and I grew up my first 15 years of my life in Trinidad and Tobago. I did not really experience the level of racism. Now, granted, I think in, in a country like Trinidad, where there's such a diaspora and it's, it's, it's so much East Indians, you have Syrians, you have Chinese, you have obviously the African background, and you experience some of it. Growing up mm-hmm. as a black man, um, in my neighborhood, we didn't really care. But if you went for someone of my complexion, I didn't have dreadlocks at the time, but even blacks used to look at, at, at black people with dreadlocks and it was stigmatized because of what it was associated with. Well, just so act, within, act from ignorance, from a point of ignorance, what, what, what were people associating it with? They were associating it with uh, the Rastafarian movement, which they talk about like the weed smoking and the, mm-hmm. it, was, it wasn't really understood. Mm. Right. So it was and, and up to this day, um, it's still to a level frowned upon. It's more widely accepted because back then people with dreadlocks were they grew dreadlocks as part of their Rastafarian practice. It wasn't style back then. What was the what right? was the practice? Like why why is there I remember there was I heard a story around Bob Marley too, like one of the reasons and again, like please correct me if I've heard this this incorrectly, that one of the reasons the treatment for the cancer that eventually killed him was because of the Rastafarian approach to like you don't cut things off your body. It's like and and, and yeah. please, please God, correct me if I if I've misunderstood <laughs> well, this. Well I I would say I don't I don't understand too much of of that practice, but mm-hmm. Pretty much, it's it's really that. Like they believe in the herbs, they believe in uh, Selassie, um, Selassie African roots, and mm-hmm. and all that stuff. I I don't really, I can't really tell you the specifics of what they practice, mm-hmm. but I know it was stigmatized because it came with the the smoking of the marijuana, and back then, obviously, that was like that's a big no no. And they pretty much st- stated to themselves, I couldn't understand because they were not violent people. Right, they were I've very never, peaceful, but I've never understood why people are like, keep the alcohol, but don't smoke. It's like the thing that makes you angry and violent is the thing they're gonna they're gonna require you to have, rather than the thing that just keeps you right. asleep on your couch. All right, so so coming back to where I was heading is that if I was to go and and let's say date or show interest in to uh, Indian girl, and I apologize if if um. You're looking at I'm I, like I'm not looking at the camera because my screen is. You're totally fine, bro. It's okay. It's okay. So um, that would be frowned upon the Indian families because most a lot of them are Hindus or Muslim and they have this belief that my daughter is going to be in an arranged marriage. Mm. We already picked her husband, so it was a stigma back then, but not to the extent of when I came to the U.S. I really didn't understand, and 
what puzzled me most about the U.S., and this is where I say there's so many layers to this thing, is that I came here, I experienced, uh, like I said on my life, I experienced some, of, some things that, as a black man, I, I couldn't wrap my head around that I didn't even do anything, and I'm here staring down the barrel of a gun with a man in a, in a police uniform. Now, this is you like know, right when you first moved here. What, when I first moved here, my first experience was on Flatbush Avenue. This is my first ever experience, or I would say negative interaction with a police officer. Mm. And my brother and I, we were walking down Flatbush Avenue. And back then, that's like the Caribbean center of the world, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And this dude walks up to me and puts his hand in my pocket. Now, I have never met an undercover cop before. So I, at that time, I didn't know what they looked like. And me and this dude start fighting. Like, physical fight. Because I'm, I'm, you're not going to walk up on me and put your hands in my pocket. Now, I come from Laventil. Back home, you had to either... They had to know that you were not going to take any crap to leave you alone. So, you know, so... You come here and now it's like, who the hell is this dude? So I'm still on my mentality from love until like, yeah, you're not going to walk up to me and put your hands in my pocket. I'm going to defend myself. So it's after we're, we're physically fighting and he's on the floor and he reaches and pulls his badge out. Now, while he's reaching, I'm, my brother is saying like, Shella and the cops, the cops, the cops. And I'm looking around like, where? I don't see any cops. And I look down and I see he pulls his badge out. So I jump back. They threw me against the a storefront. Some other cops came. Obviously, it was a big thing. But of people by this time are surrounding us. Like, yeah, no, that's bullshit because he didn't. They didn't do anything. So the sergeant came, and as the first time, I didn't know the difference. All I saw is this dude in a white shirt came up, asked what happened. I'm like, sir, I apologize. I didn't know it was a, a cop. Like, this dude just put his hands in my pocket. And everyone is screaming, like, no, leave them alone. Turns out they were looking for somebody. And a usual thing, my brother and I matched the description. Mm -hmm. Right? So that incident, that was my first incident. This is in 1997. I came to this country in February of 97. This happened in the summer of 97. So... Fast forward a few years. I just want to sort of – sorry to interrupt, Sheldon, but I, I kind of just want – I mean, I, to me, I'm, I've been hearing a lot. It's like the, the sort of permission that, that people in authority – and I, I want to be careful here because I do think that this applies to anyone in authority. I mean, we can talk about CEOs of company taking advantage. Like you have certain – you're allowed to do things that you wouldn't do if you weren't wearing a badge. Like reaching in a stranger's pocket um, <laughs> is something – like Sheldon, I've known you for a long time and and – you're a big person. Uh, like I, I was, I wasn't that big back then. I, I, maybe, I maybe, was. Now it's your <laughs> MMA training has got you all beefed up. But like, but I, just the idea that, like, I wouldn't do that to someone I know. Like, I wouldn't do that to Kendall, and I've Kendall's like a brother to me. Like the <laughs> idea that you, you that that somebody, even if you're undercover, would feel the permission to do that and then not expect a response back is. Just I, you know, again, I'm I'm speaking a little bit from my ignorance of this type of interaction, but um, right, it's so insane. When when I'm sharing my experiences now, it's gonna segue into why I think that 
there's this there's this huge divide because when you grow up like you said you grew up in a community where um the message you got was like black people equal negativity and it's the same message on the other side where now people in the community are seeing how we are being policed mm. right and how we are being governed and it's like you said it's more than just being policed and like i said there are layers to these things there's an economical uh, system that that is oppressive you know when you think about how the us is built it's it's, it's a capitalist society and the haves keep taking because they want more right mm-hmm. but that's a whole another conversation right now we're dealing with uh race relations and and my just my thoughts my ideas and my my feelings towards what's going on yeah and also now, i want to be clear too that like when we spoke before i i only really want to hear your experiences like i don't i'm not I'm not requiring or expecting of you to speak on behalf of, I mean, this is the other thing. It's like when you, half of my Facebook is darker skinned, like because (laughs) of my experience in the, in the steel band world, like I just have a million people that I've, I've come across in that experience. And there is as diverse a spectrum of opinion on how things should go in that community as there are in the world. And I really, really want us to be careful, me in particular, to not ask a question that requires you to sort of speak on behalf of anyone (laughs) other than you, you know? Well, I'll tell you this. One thing I I don't do is I don't speak for anyone else. Mm -hmm. If I say anything, I would tell you either one, my experience or two, in my opinion, I, I repeat that phrase very often because people tend to, lash out like oh why you think this no we could have a different of opinions without having to be mad at each other about it mm-hmm. and i always say specifically in my opinion because i don't want anyone to feel that i'm speaking for them because i know we all have different views right even with this situation now with the riots and the protests i've seen black people lashing out at each other unfriend me delete me and i think that's the wrong approach is because we have a difference of opinions mm-hmm. on how this thing should be handled. There is no formula at this point to say that we should do this. Mm-hmm. There's one formula in my opinion, and that's to change the entire system. But the way the system is set up, we now have to figure out how are we going to go about that? And that's where the conversation needs to be had. It's not about your protesting is wrong or my lack of protest is wrong because I, I, and I've said it in my video is that my approach at this point, uh, this point in my life is more cerebral than yours. Like, and I'm not obviously, you know how, mm-hmm. what I'm referring to. Um, so there are people who they don't know anything else, but brute force. Mm-hmm. That's all they, they grew up seeing. That's all they know. And, um, you know, so I'm going, I'm, I'm just going to go back to, I, I want to just speak about maybe three more experiences really quickly Please. that I've had with cops mm-hmm. in New York City. And I want to be very clear that this is not all white cops. This is not, I'm here in Houston now. This is not all in Houston. There's all the incidents I'm telling you about happened in Brooklyn, New York. One incident happened in Maryland. And one would think that in Brooklyn, 
because again, it goes back to what we are exposed to the information we receive at the age we were growing up in Brooklyn, we feel safe from racism. Oh, that's the general feeling mm. because, hey, it's all of us. It's the Caribbean people, you know, mm. black African-Americans, Afro-Caribbean. So we feel like, yeah, we experience challenges in policing, but I'll tell you, when I said, when I told some people I'm moving to Texas, they were like, oh my God, you're going in that racist state? Like, <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. that's the reality. Mm-hmm. People from Brooklyn and the five boroughs, boroughs in, in New York don't know what the rest of New York's racial composition is because they're not exposed to it. Mm. New York is a huge state. And New York has a lot of Caucasian people, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Demographically speaking. But you have the concentration in the cities and that goes on across the U.S. Mm -hmm. So our our exposure and it goes to your exposure to black folks and my exposure to white folks is limited, very limited. Mm -hmm. So what we know about each other and what the media does and they do it because they need they need to p- tell the story. They need to push the story. They need all the attention. They're fighting for ratings. Mm-hmm. So who? what they do is they tend to pick the most controversial stories or topics to spread. And then they change their just the narratives. If they're asking a question, I see how they question people. And they direct the line of questioning to get the answer that they want. Mm-hmm. They don't just ask you, okay, let me hear your thoughts on this. When you respond, then they say, so do you think that this way or what are your thoughts about that way? Now, I just told you my opinions. Now you're driving me to to answer in the way you want me to answer. And that's the media. Can we, we, they have a responsibility to bring a new story, but it's a system where they are competing. So they are going to try to find the most, uh, controversial way to tell their stories you watch at all these news uh when they're going live and all that stuff many of the people they actually interview and show on live tv are not people who would generally have my way of expressing myself and be like you know what this is what it is logically mm-hmm. and and cerebral as people who are would be talking crap somebody who looks like they may be aggressive or something and that's sort of kind of what they go for um generally speaking what i've seen and i I keep going back to what i've seen and what i've noticed i noticed fox news has an agenda cnn has an agenda Mm -hmm. right they have their audience they appeal to and they push that narrative to them so going back to my experiences um there's one time i was on the train I'm going about my business. It has nothing to do with anyone. So I'm on the train. The train is not moving. They say, okay, we're held here. The court of cops are, is an investigation. A police officer pokes his head in the car I'm in. He looks at me and he looks down to the other end of the train car and he sees another young black man. I don't know this guy. I have never met this guy in my life. Right? Never. I don't, we live in the same community and I've never spoken to this guy. I don't know his face. I don't know anything about him. And that's kind of when you concentrate it, that's how it is. Mm -hmm. 
And this cop looks at me. He looks at the guy. He looks at me again. So now everyone on the train is looking at me and him and I'm looking at him and he's looking at me because that's that's where the cop is directing his attention. And obviously he's like, you and you, come off the train. And both of us are looking like puzzled at this point because I'm I'm going about my business again. I have I've done nothing wrong. I'm 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 a law-abiding citizen of the US. And I and we come off the train, the train goes about his business. And as soon as he was about to say something, uh, a voice comes over the radio and said, guys, we got him here. We got him here. So he comes out and he's like, oh, I apologize. You look, you fit the description. We're looking for two guys. All right. I'm like, so how did you decide that we were the two you're looking for? Well, you guys seem to know each other. I'm like, no, we didn't. We looked at each other when you looked at us the way you did. Like, you created the situation for us. Mm-hmm. We weren't there. We weren't sweating. We, were, we didn't look like we were running. We weren't short of breath. We weren't like, you know, you know when someone knows the other person because they keep looking. You know it. You could tell. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you created the situation. Like, we didn't, you come, you saw two black males on opposite ends of this, this car. And I could understand sometimes people do that. But you automatically like, yeah, you guys fit the description. And I don't know what the crime was, who they were looking for. Mm-hmm. And then he pre- simply proceeded to be like, all right, guys. And that was it. There was no remorse. There was no, you know what? I apologize for this. It was just go about his business. All right. Other incidents. I was in Maryland. I lived in Maryland for a few months. I was going to a holiday party. Right. So I was dressed up. I had on dress clothes. Mm-hmm. This is December. This is Christmas. Mm-hmm. My cousin and I in the car, we're driving. A car, car pulls up behind us. And actually, they had just apparently finished giving someone a ticket or something. Because, you know, when you pass them, you see them pull over and they turn their lights. They just literally turn their lights off. Mm-hmm. And they turned around and came behind us. They followed us for about two miles. Right? And this was in Prince George's County. And we drove, we drove. We stopped at a traffic light and we're there. They're behind us. I'm telling my cousin, like, listen, we're going to get pulled over. He's like, how do you know that? I'm like, we're going to get pulled over. This is just what I've experienced. As the, the, there's a border from Prince George's County to Montgomery County. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's jurisdiction um, situation. So they obviously they pulled us over before we got to the border. Mm-hmm. And it's not like we were trying to outrun them or anything. Took us out the car. Sit on the sidewalk. Now remember, I'm telling you, I have a dress pants on, dress shirt on. It's December. It's cold. And we're on the sidewalk. I'm like, can I get my jacket? No. They pulled my car over. They wait. We sat there for like 10 minutes. Three more cars pull up. Um, a K-9 unit comes. So they bring the K-9 unit. One of the, the officers took my information. They didn't say anything to that point. Mm-hmm. And he took my information, went back to the car. And while he was back there running my information, the other cop proceeds to say, you know, this will go much easier if you told us who you stole the car from. <laughs> my, this is my vehicle that I purchased with my own money. You're like, and I'm I stole it from the Honda dealership with $22,000. That's I'm what like, I did. Really? Okay. <laughs> Here's you the know, bill of sale, you I'm ass. Like, 
so so run <laughs> go run my place you know and yeah. come back and uh, so they did they didn't find anything and it proceeded to issue me a, two tickets for tailgating i don't know i don't know who i was tailgating <laughs> and for something else i can't even remember i go to court and I go to court to fight these tickets and the courtroom is packed with minorities. Packed. So the judge comes and he says, uh, first case such and such. And the officer, and he calls the officer name. He's not present. Okay, next case. Calls about five cases. It's the same one officer that issued all these summonses. Didn't get anything. So they had a few officers that were there. And when he called the other three cases with this particular officer and no one was there, he said, everyone who has this officer's name on their tickets to stand up. And I'm not kidding you. 80% of that room stood up. Right. And the judge turned red. Like he was angry. He dismissed everyone's. And the following week I saw there was an investigation into racial profiling in Maryland. Um, and I'll, I'll just go over that one incident where I had the gun in my face. Um, so I was driving. I'm going. Um, I'm not sure if you're too f- familiar enough with Brooklyn. So no Tilden Avenue by Utica Avenue. Mm-hmm. I'm going up Tilden. I see a cop car pull out of a driveway. Now, I was going to my cousin's wedding in New Jersey. And I was went to pick up my wife at the time. Because mm-hmm. I got a rental car. I'm driving the car. And... This was a few years after Amadou Diallo had been shot. 41 shots for reaching for his wallet. So I'm driving. This cop car is behind me. So I reach a King's Highway and I pull sort of to the right to see if they will pass me. They, they don't. So I'm very uncomfortable at this, situ- at this point. So I turn down my music. I wind the window down. I'm trying to figure out what my next move is going to be. I'm going to keep going, but I'm not comfortable with them behind me. Now, this is four years uh, no, two years after that incident happened in Maryland, because I'm back in Brooklyn now. So I get to Ralph Avenue, and you turn left or right at Ralph Avenue. I see a corner store open. I said, you know what? I'm going to pull over and act like I'm going to the store, because I'm very uncomfortable with these cops behind me. And as I go to make the left, the car pulls in front of me. No sirens, no lights, no nothing. The driver runs out, draws his weapon, and trains it on me. So I'm sitting like this, my hands in the air. He says, turn the car off, throw the keys out the window. I'm like, "Uh, no, sir. And he's yelling. I said, turn the car off, throw the keys out the window. I said, sir, I'm not moving until you lower your weapon. He's not moving, I'm not moving. And we sat there for about five minutes, back and forth. He's yelling, I'm yelling, but I'm not moving. Then his partner comes and his partner says like, go ahead, I, I, I have you covered. So that's when he lowered the gun. I threw the keys out the window. Um, said, you didn't see I was pulling you over? I said, no, you weren't. Like, there's no I said, what happened to your siren? Your lights are not even on. Like, he, he said, oh, man, I think maybe maybe I need, it needs to fix. I need to check it. Gives me three tickets for tailgating, for music too loud, and for stopping, failing to stop for emergency vehicle. Right now, I'm sitting there like, what? Where was the emergency? Oh, I was trying to pull you over. I said, you never did. Yeah, well, if you had turned your music down, you would have heard it. I'm like, so when you pulled up to the car, did you hear any music? Yeah, well, that's because you probably turned. I said, no, sir. I turned my music down at King's Highway. 
and it wasn't even loud when I passed you guys. Short, anyhow, the, the other cop came and he said, you know what? He brought the tickets. He said, listen, uh, apologize. You know, just go to court and don't worry about it. So he pretty much told me that he would make sure the cop doesn't show up in court to fight the tickets. But at this point, I'm livid and I want justice because there's no reason for a gun to be my face. Now I feel threatened. My life is threatened and I've done nothing wrong. So this is my experience. And my response to all of this and to, to the racism and, and I've, I've worked in Barney's New York. And I'm a worker there. And two ladies, older white ladies, they're walking and they're chatting in the store, right? And one of the ladies, like they were walking towards me, but they weren't paying attention. So I step aside so that they don't bump into me. And they veer off and the lady bumps into me and she was about to fall. So I caught her from falling. She yells, get off of me. Security, I'm being robbed. I jump back and I'm like, no, ma'am, I work here. No, you try to take my purse. I said, no, you bumped into me. You were falling and I tried to prevent you from falling. Right? Calls my supervisor. And this is what this is what bothered me more than anything else. My supervisor was an older white lady. And instead of her saying, well, he works here. I don't think he's going to rob you, but let's look into it. She automatically jumps to this lady's defense. Sheldon, why would you go and try to do this? And I'm looking at her like, what? Now security, everyone is in the store looking like, oh, what's going on here? I'm like, why would I come to work? If I was to rob someone, why would I do it where I work? Makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Now, Barney's New York has a very sophisticated security system. Mm-hmm. So security was like hey easy to tell let's go look at the, the the footage and exactly how i said it is how it played out now the lady who made the original accusation was very apologetic mm-hmm. right i mean that doesn't change anything but my supervisor she she didn't even know what to say she got so pale and she looked at me and i was like don't even say anything because i know now how you think about me right so Dealing with that in a city like New York, where it's so diverse, you would never think, or or someone, most of us, and I'm speaking from someone coming from the Caribbean, we know racism exists. That's that's just sort of just there. Mm -hmm. But in a city like New York, Brooklyn, where there's so many people from all over the world, for it to just still be there so vivid just in your face when you when you say something when you sorry to interrupt again sheldon but you you mentioned like in a city like new york where diversity is so prevalent like like it it, diversity has sort of been a buzzword that has been been used a lot in the last like three to five years in industry in the music world um in the nonprofit world um your, you, what your organization looks like, what it is like, is your organization, is your board of directors diverse? Is your clientele diverse? You know, those sorts, those sorts of things. Um, the problem though, that I've always struggled with, with when people use that is like, well, you're just not doing, you're not diverse. It's like, yeah, yeah. I'm not so sure you're willing to deal with the complications that come from diversity. Like I'm with yeah. you. 
I've, I love being in a steel band with students of mine, with people who are Jewish, people who are Muslim, people who are um, atheist, you know, and we all get together and say a prayer at the end of the, the rehearsal, a Christian prayer. And the complicate, like when we talk about diversity, it's like, I need to put my own bullshit on the side and realize that what I'm doing here isn't a struggle for religious rights. We're communing together. And that, if I want diversity, I have to accept that that might be something I need to sort of swallow about my own ideologies in the world. The way I think other people should should act, should pray, should commune. Do we do? Do we pray together? Do we not pray together? Do we eat together? So if we eat together, then we should pray together, right? Like, that's what diversity is. And it's super complicated. And I've, I've always been frustrated when people make diversity out to be like, that's the solution. It's like, well, no, that's the end result. No, 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 but no. the solution is no. like having thousands the solution, of... Con- the solution starts with us as our individual communities. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm going to speak like just understanding that and I understood it, but it's, it's good to hear it from someone that you grew up in an area where all you knew was white people and mm-hmm. and and had a negative image or you expectations of African Americans or people with a different color of your skins were not that high, but that's a system that you're in, and there are a lot of those in the U.S. of A. Right? There are many more than us black people would like to acknowledge, right? And I I'm not saying this. Um to say to you or to say to any white person that it's okay to treat us a certain way. But my message to my fellow people of color is that we need to start from ourselves. We need to start understanding each other. We need to start to learn that it's okay for someone to have a different point of view and a difference of opinion. We need to start to understand that what wealth really means for us. We need to understand that we need to to devalue the material possessions that we seek. Right? Because these things are all things that affect how we treat each other. And in turn... What I've noticed is, and this is living in different communities, they police us differently mm-hmm. because of what we do to each other in our community. And I, I say this, and people will get upset when they hear this, but it is the reality. And again, I'm not saying this to send a message to say that, guys, I'm putting, and I, I use the, the analogy of like a house. I'm not putting my business in my household out in the street but guess what it's in the street already so let's discuss it right and some people are there's no don't tell me about black and black crime yeah it's black and black crime what what is a crime a crime is when you do something that breaks the law pretty much if you steal from me and i'm black and you're black that's black and black crime however you choose to say it right the problem with that is that we don't first we need to own up, take responsibility for how we portray ourselves out there. Right now, I we are already, all right, slavery, 
segregation, we've, we have a lot of rights now, more than we ever did. It's not 100% there, but we have more resources at our disposal for a better fight. How we fight is, is the, the biggest question. Again, I, I'm saying there's no one formula, but in my opinion, it starts with us, right? And, and not just us, but every uh, ethnic community or every demographic. Like, white, white people need to have a real conversation with, with, with themselves. Well, I, right? I'm very, I'm, I think the thing that scares me about about all of this and is like, I know what it took for me to have the views I do in life of that. You know, I know. And it, again, like I, I don't want to give the impression that my town was like riddled with KKK members and that it was like Nazi signs everywhere. Like it wasn't at all. It was like, I played little league baseball. My, my little league baseball team had, you know, the first, I think the first black kid I ever knew his name was Julius Avery. He was on my team and, but it wasn't like, Nobody, saw, like nobody on our team, we were all, I was all young. It was just like, just Julius, like, and he was like, you're Josh, you know? And it's like, that's, that's sort of the beauty about youth is like, you don't, you don't have the baggage of what other people taught you to think about other people. And, but for me, it was just, a, it was a very slow under the radar process of like somebody just showing me Cliff Alexis being generous with me, allowing me over the course of the you know, almost 25 years, I knew that man, like allowing me to say, Cliff, I don't have, I've never felt comfortable to ask you this in front of everybody else, but why do you, why do you have to get your hair cut somewhere else? And him being like, get in the car. And he took me to a black barber shop in Akron, Ohio. And as a student, I was in charge of driving Cliff around. And he, t- he took me to that <laughs> barber shop in a part of town I had never been to, didn't even know existed. We walk into a storefront that looked like, it had been bombed out, but when you walked in, was like this little church of like conversation. I didn't realize what a barbershop could be or was to other people. And Cliff is like, sit in that chair and don't say anything. <laughs> and we, I was like, okay. And I sat there for two hours and watched them cut his hair for about 10 of those minutes. <laughs> and the rest of it was them just That's, shooting yep. the shit. And yep. I sat there, I walked out of that, and it was like, oh. Cliff could have said, you're a stupid white person. I don't need to show you anything. Your people did this to me over the last hundred years. Deal with it. But he he really wrapped his arms around me and forced me in a very, I don't know how to say it other than a gentle way. It was just like, come with me. And then it was like, now I want you to meet Bugsy Sharp. And then I'm in charge of driving Bugsy around. I don't know Bugsy at all, <laughs> you know? And you're going to put a 19-year-old kid in, try, in charge of driving Bugsy Sharp around? Northern Ohio, like I learned from that. And then I go to Trinidad and, and I'm the only white person in an entire steel band yard being like, oh, this no one talked to me for two weeks. That's what this is like, you know. <laughs> and then there was a gentleman behind me who had he had the Black Panther regalia on, like the fatigues and the beret and the, and the yeah. patch. Older guy, probably in his 70s. And again, I'm 20 years old at this point. And this is 2002. And so he's behind me, never says a word. He's playing guitar. The whole time. And there's another guy named Castro right beside him with a huge scar across his face, big, long dreads. I'd never seen dreadlocks like that before. And <laughs> two weeks into our, my three and a half weeks, I just get a tap on my shoulder and I turn around and he says, I appreciate you coming here. You're really good. 
my name's so-and-so and I'd like to talk to you. And I was like, okay. And then I was like, what's that patch mean? And then he told me all about the Black Panther movement. I had no idea. No idea. And he just talked to me and gave me a carob. And, like, we had this conversation. Now, again, I am not advocating or saying that that's the way every racial conversation needs to happen. There are a million ways to do it. But that's how it happened for me. And from that point, like, those conversations stripped away any fear I had about walking into a pan yard in Brooklyn or just following any advice. Kendall Williams was like, hey, go over here. I'm like, yes, sir. I'll go over there. And it's like meeting Jerion, Odie. Um, Lakeisha, everybody, you know, the Georges, it's like everybody I've, I've come across in that world. And I don't, it took 15 to 20 years, Sheldon. How do we do that for people who aren't coming from this, from a, from a genuine place of hate? Like, I don't believe well, my town has a place I, of hate, but how do we, how do we teach people this? Cause I think it's it, a learned it's, behavior. It is learned behavior. And, and it starts again. I, I think it starts in each community where, we have to face our real conversations. Now, when I say black people need to have the conversation, I'm not saying that it's all. When you go into 90% of these poor, quote-unquote, crime-riddled communities, you'll meet a lot of hard-working, honest, genuinely loving people. But the bad ones... And that's why I said the coverage, the way things are portrayed, and I'll use an example, is our social media today. Mm-hmm. Look at the things that get the million hits and the hundred million hits and the thousands of hits. It's all riddled with controversy, right? And this is why I say we need to have a conversation. You see two people, two black folks squaring up to fight. And there's everyone cheering, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm not saying that that's not going to happen. What I'm saying is that that's what we portray to the world, mm. right? That's what we show people we are about. And that's the thing that people love, uh, 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 as we say in Trinidad, Abacanal. They love uh, uh, something that creates some sort of, uh, they, they love negativity. We feed into it. Mm. Right, and that's I think that's a human. That's a human thing for sure. Right, right. Yeah. and that's what I'm saying across the board. Now, mm-hmm. from my perspective, the black point of view, ninety percent of our people in our community, hardworking, genuinely loving, or whatever the case is, but we see mostly the five percent of those people, or ten percent, that do all the negative stuff. That's what's highlighted, mm-hmm. right? And as somebody coming from the Caribbean. They, we fight each other. Everyone is like, yeah, well, my country is better than yours and our artists and our music. And I'm like, guys, listen, we're the Caribbean. We don't even make up the population of the, of a state in the damn U.S. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. we're, as I always compare, there's a bit, the world is a huge pie. We're not even a slice. We're half of a slice. But we're fighting each other. Mm-hmm. The sad part about that is that we promote that out there. And where we need to start to change a point of view is we need to control the narrative. Are there, are there not going to be fights? Are there not going to be disagreements? Obviously not. It's, we're all human and we all grow up with our own minds to think how we like to think. Some of us grow up in a situation where what we know or what we experience doesn't allow us 
to see anything differently. Yeah. Um, that being said, as a great, as a community, right, we have to teach our young ones, if you are fighting amongst each other, first of all, what what's the basis of this? Is it worth it? Well, most times we're fighting for something that's trivial, that doesn't even require us to get to that point, that we could resolve with a discussion and we could still end it having a difference of opinions without being mad at each other to where I'm like, yo, you disrespect me, I'm going to kill you, man. Like I've seen and I'm talking about as recently as last week with two of my friends and I had to call them like, guys, this is stupid. This is stupid. You're going to threaten. No, it gets to the point where and and the what's crazy about it is that they are fight they're arguing and threatening each other's lives over something neither of them were initially involved in mm-hmm. right so they pretty much bought this this uh <laughs> disagreement from the two original people that had the disagreement yeah well and it's an interesting like, mean, the social media thing right now too like a part of where my i mean the conversations you see being had right now online and which is why I wanted to talk with you in a, as a person because I trust you and like we we wouldn't be able to go down the route of the way social media deals with things um but the as you know there's a lot of statements that start as a white person on social media or as a black person or if you are white or if you are black x y and z is what you must do in order to be an ally and if you're not doing these things you are complicit in hundreds of years of slavery and i keep thinking to myself like no, no, no. I understand what you're saying, but you're painting with an incredibly broad brush here. Like, I don't, I don't know how to enter that conversation is, I guess what I'm saying. Like my friends in the steel band world. And again, I'm using this as my experience, like what, how I've learned. And, you know, I've been told so many times like, oh, you're just saying that because you have a black friend. And I'm like, whoa, 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 like, wait a minute. <laughs> no, I understand what you're saying. I understand why that, that mode of arguing is troublesome. If you know, if you if you've texted with one black person in your life and then you use that as your reason, it's like I do have a, I have a lot of black friends and I'm not speaking on their behalf. I'm just telling you what they've told me. And like, I think you're wrong when you say the thing you just said. And I haven't known how to enter the conversation because I don't want to speak on behalf of my friends. It's not my role. I don't that that's very presumptuous of me to assume what you think to assume what Kendall thinks, to assume what Lakeisha or anybody thinks about things. On the other hand, um, if we don't participate in a conversation together as friends, I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to fix this. I mean, me chiming in on social media, I get lit up mostly by my white friends. It's not my (laughs) black friends. Like that's the thing that's, I'm just going to say it to you. Like a lot of the people I see posting things about how to be an ally to the black community or how to support your, you know, people that are being screwed with right now. Most of it is coming from my white friends. And I don't know how to tell them, like, I'm very curious, like how much, like, what, what is your actual experience? I guess, I guess I'm, I don't know how to read what you're saying. And I'm saying this all just as like, those are my insecurities as a person in terms of how to communicate on social media. I wish more people would have just have conversations with people they know. And, and like, yeah, I- you know, we learn and more from media, each other that way, I think. Right. Social media to me is a, is a screen. It, it gives people the opportunity to pretty much say what they're saying or just be, just say what the hell they want without 
anyone really holding them accountable for right. it. Because you could say what you want to me on the screen. At the end of the day, I don't have to sit and stare you in the face and actually speak with you about what I just said on Facebook. A- accountability right? is like that is a word I wish we would we would put at the top of oh, the sort of like pe- food pyramid that's of what one we need to- as, that's a word I use with everything in life. You know, I've been doing a podcast for three, four years now. I've done you're my you're my hundred and fifty first conversation I've had with people, Sheldon. And the number of people who will like say something to me online about like, oh, you don't you know, you blah blah blah. And I'm like, come on my podcast and talk about it with me. And they're like, No, I don't feel comfortable talking publicly. I'm like, you just said something on Facebook. That's public, you know, right? <laughs> like you don't want to be held accountable because that's I'm it. not I'm not going to yell at you for what I'm just going to ask you why you think that over and over and over again until we get to the seed. And that's not yeah. something you want to do, because I think you know where the seed is. And <laughs> it is terrifying. I understand that. But we got to hold ourselves accountable. Otherwise. All right. So I know and there are some people that are going to listen to this or see this because I'm going to post it. Me too. And say, um, yeah, Sheldon, like you're not upset. Trust me. <laughs> Anyone who thinks that I am not upset because of the way I'm communicating my frustrations, are de- they're delusional. I would say the same for I'm me, just, too. I, anybody right? who thinks that I'm not upset because I'm not ranting and raving on Facebook or I'm not screaming at you right now about how white people have ruined the world, like, that's not – there are plenty of people doing that. Right. I want to talk with somebody. Yeah, everyone is doing that. <laughs> and they're, they're judging others who right. are not reacting the same. Now, I get the anger. You can't know – like some of the people that are talking and are angry have never experienced a lot of the things that I have experienced. And that's why I wanted to share my experience so that when I speak, people understand that I'm not speaking from a porch looking out, right? A lot of people look at me and say, yeah, he's a, he's a nurse. He's successful. He's been, I've been told this by a young black man. You don't know what it's like in these streets. You're a successful healthcare professional. Before I was a sex, I, I, and to top it off, I came to this country as an immigrant, right? I cannot tell, express enough how much of a struggle that is, even being black in Brooklyn, because we were called coconuts and all of that stuff by african-americans accused of coming here to steal jobs so they can't get jobs i remember i had a conversation with a former classmate of mine on a train after we graduated and i had started my health career i was a pct at the time and we're on a train coming from work and i'm like hey what's up man i see this guy in like yes we graduated in 98 and i'm like i was life like man you know how it is the man is holding me down one thing that I am not about, I'm not about that um, mentality where anyone else controls what I do in my life. Yes, there are systems in place, mm-hmm. and I strongly believe that, that are there to keep us at a certain level. I, I believe that with all my heart. But I am going to do everything I can with all the opportunities and all the resources that are now available to me to make sure that I change that narrative for me. I'm not going to sit and blame the system, right? 
is their system that's it's seriously flawed. And I'll use the example of uh, the welfare system, mm-hmm. right? Of the social aid people get. In the black community, it's frowned upon, right? But the black community is not the only community that received this aid. Yeah. Right? So I'm like, yes, I understand the system. And I had to fight this system and fight with my own black people because you see me as a threat. And that's what we need to minimize or start holding back and having conversations of, listen, let's discuss. Why do you see me as a threat? Because I'm here. You think I'm here to steal a job. No, I'm not here to steal a job. I'm just trying to survive just like you are. Right. How could we coexist and not feel like I'm trying to take your job or I not feel like you're attacking me or you you have a view of me because you feel I'm trying to take your job. Now, that creates a perception in my mind of black Americans because my experience is that you guys don't like Caribbean. You hear an accent and you're like, oh, you guys come to steal our jobs and whatever, whatever. So that's where it begins. And for seeing you, you saying that you on Facebook and you don't know how to start the conversation. And this is a start to me. This is a start. And I, I always believe I tell myself every single day, if I could change the life of one individual then I've done my duty, mm. that's how I live my life positively. Right. I know I'm not going to reach a million people. I no, I'm not going to reach the masses. I'm not going to be able to change the world with my point of view. But if I could change one person's life, and I don't have to change how you think or how you, but if I could transition you from a negative space to a positive space, you could have the same information and same thoughts and process it differently. Right, mm-hmm. and you have a different outcome. And I always tell people, you have two approaches to every situation. How you deal with people is how they respond to you. Right, and I, I've, I've said it to my staff, my employees. I'm like, listen, you could get this, this, you could get the same message across, but have a different reaction by the way you present that message. Me yeah. coming and be like, yo, Josh. Yo, go and move that pan, put it in the back, man. You had that shit sitting out there for a month. And I'm instead, I'm like, Josh, you know what? Is it possible you could move that pan? Like, you know, let's put it away so we could keep it, you know, keep the place. That's too, I'm going to get two different reactions. Yeah. Because when I come at anyone aggressively or anyone comes at me aggressively, your first instinct is defensive. So what yeah. you're saying to me, I'm not even hearing what you're saying. I'm like, why the hell are you talking to me like that? You know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's general. Some people have a different way of showing it. They may not be able to respond the way they want to, but it's in there. I, and it's a block. I think that, I mean, I think about, I mean, I said earlier that I think racism, bigotry, misogyny, any of those things are, um, I'm not, I don't want to discount that there's any sort of evolutionary reason we've evolved to see others as a thing. I, I don't want to discount the science on that. There might be some reason that we've all evolved to be afraid of other people. I've heard people say, like, before we knew what diseases were and that we had a global sort of immunity to some things, like you, another another group of people comes from the town over and you get sick and everybody dies. And you sort of, over time, that translates later to, you know, obviously you have people like Christopher, you know, or uh, uh, you have slavery and all those things. But 
I think the vast, I would say 99% of all of that stuff is learned. Someone teaches you. And what I've, the way, what I know about learning, whether it be calculus or how to play scales on a, on a Bertie Marshall style double tenor or whatever it is, like it's a process. You start slow. You don't learn to run, you're not, you're not, you don't start out as Usain Bolt. You start slowly and it takes a long time. Um, and you know, I, I think about this, like, well, if you're, if you're afraid, I guess I want to sort of pivot here. Like if folks are afraid cause they don't know how to learn about another culture, I feel like let's think about it. Like you would start working out. Like if you don't know what it's like to be in a black community and you have, and you, and you feel genuinely like you don't harbor any hate, but you just don't know how to end the conversation. Just take a, take a, take a picnic chair with you and go to a pan yard rehearsal and just watch. Like that's, that's like buying your new pair of running shoes to learn how to run. Like that's day one. And then day two, move your chair in a little bit and say hello to somebody. And then day three, day four. And then by the time you get to year nine, when you walk in that yard, Sheldon comes running up to you with a bacon shark. Like that's (laughs) how it works. And I think like this idea that any of this is going to be solved overnight um, and it's like, and is, is insane. That's delusional to me. And it's like, I've been doing this now, like for 15, 20 years and walking in front of a pan, like this year when we were down in, in Trinidad, I took the so guys and Shelby, all of us white and the, the Shelby had played Pam before. You don't, you know, Shelby, right? Yeah. Yeah. Shelby had played Pam before the other three guys had never, they had never even been in a pan yard. And so their first experience with pan on that level was Trinidad it, with Skiffle. You know, and I just was like in the deep end, fellas, no, like you don't get the little floaties or anything. Just get in there. You're going to figure it out. And, you know, Bravo was the driller. Do you know Bravo? Uh, No, I don't. But I've only seen, you know, he had been drilling them for a month and a half prior to me getting there. And, you know, Kendall had been like, hey, get in there, start drilling. Junius does the same thing. And it's like, it is not that simple for me to just walk into some total stranger, Bravo, who has been in a position of authority here in this band for a month and a half to just be like mine now. Like, no, that is a, I have to, I have to lace my shoes up, really polish off my cleats and know how to walk this because there's a huge level of respect that has to be given. And do I, do I do it well all the time? No, I've made mistakes. I, I said something in rehearsal and pissed Bravo off. And then it took me 24 <laughs> hours to mend that relationship so that, that we could rebuild some trust, you know? Um, how do you, but again, that's my, that's been my experience for you. What do you recommend? And I would say this for folks, uh, you know, for someone who is black and doesn't know, has never come across many white people before um, and reverse white people who have never had much experience with black folks before. What advice do you have? Like, what is, what is the buying, lacing up your shoes part of this for you? Well, for me, um, that lacing up part of my shoes is actually not even just moving to Houston because Houston is, is there's the inner city. There's a lot of, uh, you know, minorities there. But um, I, I'm in Kingwood now, right? And Kingwood is, I would say, 90% white, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like... I'm in a house and I'm like, wow, all my neighbors are white. I've never had that experience. Mm -hmm. But they generally have been really welcoming. I've not felt unsafe. Um, I come from Brooklyn where there's no... Brooklyn or New York probably has some of the strictest gun laws in the United States. So you don't think about people just having firearms regularly, casually. Like at the coffee shop, like strapped to their, <laughs> their hip. <laughs> <You> like, <know. laughs> 
So to me, it 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 initially was terrifying because mm. now I'm like, okay, I was in Houston. And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'll be okay. I'm in Houston. Now I'm on the outskirts of Houston. What I would say to some people, just to, so that people could have an idea, if you're in Brooklyn, it's like going out to Long Island. And I'm not talking about West Hempstead. I'm talking about somewhere on the outskirts mm -hmm. of Long Island. And it's it's a Shakti system. So now not only am I in a state where there are open carry laws, right? And almost everyone owns a, a gun. And you don't really need a license to own a gun. You just go to the gun shop. Hey, that's my driver's license. I need a gun. They run your <laughs> background and they give you, sell you a gun. Like literally that's how it is. Yeah, yeah. Right? And I'm like, wow. Like I go to the sports store. And I'm walking around looking for something. And there's this whole section with just weapons. I'm talking about pistols, machine guns. And I'm like, what the hell you did gotta, I get myself in? You got to start carrying a bow and arrow. I think that'd be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> just an open so, carry bow and arrow. <laughs> right. So now I'm like, okay. So again, I'm, I'm here in this white neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And coming from a... a a position where I've been, you know, had these experiences with cops, with, like I told you, the experience at my job, mm -hmm. going places, see white people clutch their bags, people get up and move. Um, I don't expect that it's not going to happen, but the people I generally are surrounded with, they're very pleasant. I don't know what their inner thoughts are, but they don't express, I don't get that. I go to the Walmart and it's full of Caucasians and they're like three black people and 90 white people. And it's like, hey, good day, how are you? Well, you know, and it's 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 a transition I have to get because now when I see white people, I I usually avoid eye contact because I'm like, you know what, unless I know you, right? And I'm like, I I'm not trying to get in, into it with anyone, like mm -hmm. not just to avoid any any sort of misunderstanding. But people, the minute they you have that eye contact. They're like, hi, how are you? And I'm just like, okay, I'm not really used to this. Now, I don't go out there looking at like, I. to me, I'm just in the neighborhood, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it really hits. When I did the research for the neighborhood that I'm moving to, and I'm like, damn, there's not really many black people over there. But hey, and I'm over here, and it never hit me until I'm like there and I go to the store and one day it's not something I wake up every day thinking about, wow, I'm in a white neighborhood. It's like I get up, I go about my life as usual. And the first time it hit me, I went to a Walmart and I'm like, hold up, wait, am I like the only black person in here? You know, mm. but generally everyone seems fine. Everyone seems nice. Yeah. Again, I don't know what they think personally, um, but to me, that's like one step off. I know, like I know you, Josh. I've, I've, you're not the the first white person I play pan with. A few I play with in England, mm -hmm. and we're all cool and it's well and good. But you guys are in our world, yeah, right. So, and I, I say music, music, music generally unites people, yeah, right. So to me, that's like two positives in our world with musicians together, mm -hmm. and it's like. It's, it's a beautiful thing because there's no judgment. I don't feel judged by you. And I think that you guys who come in are more judged 
by us because like yo these white people in here playing in the band we have three white people we know how many people, white people we have in the band it's pretty easy to guys. tell yeah we stick out a little bit <laughs> so it's for me that taking off the shoes is, is something like this something like really getting a perspective from another white person um the system is not going to change overnight immediately what needs to change immediately is how they deal with law enforcement that step out of bounds that is that's the that needs to change immediately that's hands down because these officers are emboldened right and some people may have that in them when they apply to be a police officer, may not know they're going to be assigned to a black neighborhood, but I don't like black people, mm -hmm. right? Now, I'm empowered because now I have a badge and a gun, and I go to court, and I say what I want. The judges, if it's you and I, you're the officer and I'm the victim, doesn't matter what I say. All you have to say is he was struggling. Yeah. He resisted. The judge is going to side with the law enforcement officer over any regular old citizen. Often, even in the cases where it's filmed. I mean, Eric Gardner is a good example of is a like, good example. That was filmed, and the the guy who used the chokehold. Now, to be clear, I don't know if he's still working or if he was let go or what. But but the ju judge did say he wasn't responsible for Eric Gardner's death. Um, the there was an autopsy. Right. I, again, I don't know if this is true. So I. I kind of hesitate to say it, but I saw uh, like a coroner report on how the, the cause of death for George Floyd was listed. Like he had a series of health concerns, underlying health concerns. He, you know, asphyxiation was not the cause of death. And it was like, and the comment was really, there was a really pithy comment that was like, yes, we're, back, I saw, we're I backing it up with like that. George Floyd Floyd was not able to withstand a nine, nine minute chokehold is like, like we is that something we all need to be able to withstand in order for it to be considered a death by chokehold? Like to be choked for nine right. minutes? Like and then and then to top it off, there what the the man was non-responsive. Mm -hmm. So even if you feel like that wasn't, or you're trying to justify the crap by saying he didn't, it wasn't dead by asphyxiation. Anyone who knows what asphyxiation is, it's by this. Right. Now your knee and the back of the head, right? Um, it can affect your breathing. Well, you you, you we were just talking about MMA before. Like MMA, when you do a chokehold, they don't they don't. It's not asphyxiation. It's it's simply putting pressure on the carotid artery, which causes blood. Exactly. I mean, and if that where that guy's knee was was right where those major arteries are, and if all it was was just he he passed out because of a lack of blood flow, that is choking someone unconscious. You didn't do it that with is. a lack of air. It was a lack of blood. Exactly. I don't know right, why Anderson so, Silva had to teach me that, but like the idea that like I thought of <laughs> MMA when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, like nobody thought about this. Right. And then the guy was unresponsive and you still sat there on him with your knee yeah. in the back of his neck. The top it off, there's a vagus nerve, right? In our spinal cord that controls our breathing, right? And it's mm -hmm. located somewhere back there. I can't tell you the exact yeah. place of anatomy, but I just think, and, I, and that's me as a simple nurse. I don't even do med search. I do dialysis. So I know everything relating to the kidneys. Yeah. But based on the knowledge I gained from school, anatomy and physiology, which was how many years ago, there's so many other things that could co have caused his death with that knee 
being and not just that knee on his neck remember there were two other guys whose knees were on his torso area so now you're talking about a combination of of situations yet those knees could diminish his blood flow again like you said the carotid artery and you're restricting the volume the abdomen has to expand the lungs to get air in so it may not be general asphyxiation or all of that, your body goes into shock, you experience a cardiac arrest. There's so many different ways that you know that could take. So it doesn't have to be that, oh, he died from a heart attack, so let's not call it murder. It is murder. It is murder. Again, I'm not a cop. I'm also not an expert on restrictive holds, like like how to how to stop someone from moving if they're trying to move. Like, I don't know. You, again, I keep going back to the MMA thing. You and I have probably watched way too many controlled fights on <laughs> national television. Um there's a myriad way. There's millions of ways to stop someone from moving that only simply involves turning their hand a specific way, like yep. turning their leg. Yep. A certain, like you get that guy in, a, in, a, in an ankle lock. Like, I'm sorry. Most people <laughs> stop moving. And I, I'm, yep. I'm shocked that like that there's not enough. There's not types of train. Like, why don't we have black belts in jujitsu teaching cops how to like correctly disarm and de-escalate a situation without snapping someone's neck or or well killing well, somebody you know like you said initially it goes back to that base mindset yeah because the guy who killed eric garner that was a move that wasn't trained by cops that was an illegal chokehold mm-hmm. right that's training that's yeah. it's not the training you would get as a cop right so we had to be careful about that because now you train a cop to be a black belt and his underlying now as as a student of MMA, you're trained not just the physical move of it. You're trained to be mental to say, you know what, these are maneuvers I should not use on regular. People. I want to be clear here that when I say that I think, I mean, what I know, I have listened to hours upon hours of people talking about like the martial arts. People who approach them genu- general, genuinely, you want to use them as a last resort. Like now, there right, are people correct. who fight professionally who use it as a tool for their job, but by and large, I mean, I just feel like there's a general lack of mentality. We have it seems like we have people who aren't trained to go into trauma, um, traumatic situations, and handle it with object objectivity. And like that's why do we train fires to deal with run into fire firemen to run into fi- burning buildings? Like like you train that way. You run into a burning building to train. And I don't know right. how cops are trained, but it seems clear to I me. I don't know, but but that's that's one thing they need to work on. Yeah. And they need to work on their selection. Like they need to do more rigorous background on these people that they're putting in to to, to police our communities. I mean I know because, I know one cop and I feel like, you know, I think you know the same person. I won't say his name, but you know, he's a steel drummer, a a, a percussionist and uh, lives in Trinidad, and it's like I would count my lucky stars if he was running at me in a time of need. You know, why isn't ever? Why can't we just copy and paste him and like put him <laughs> everywhere? Like, um, right. you know, he's a human too. But I, but there's a general sense of like he genuinely cares about the people he's in. He's he's tasked with caring about, and that's that's correct. So for me, when you see um, some of the history of these people, and I think there's there's been a uh, uh, environment of tolerance for so long, and then I saw one of one of the uh, 
commissioners or some some high ranking saying, well, we, you know, we have to retrain or something. No, you guys have to reselect mm-hmm. because if I go and and your history, we are hiring officers, and you don't do every single check on them to make sure that they are upstanding and they don't have any preconceived um, ideologies, then you're not doing the job that taxpayers are doing you to do. Now, you see a lot of officers, they're higher, they're in the force, and then they have a, a, a KKK, white supremacy connection somewhere. Those people should never be allowed mm-hmm. on a police force that polices a myriad of, of, of ethnicities, backgrounds, races, because they have a preconceived notion of white supremacy. I am better than everyone else. What do you think is going to happen when you give that person a, ba- a badge, right? Mm-hmm. And they have the backing of being a law enforcement officer. It's not going to end well. And that's mm-hmm. what we are witnessing. Yeah. And that, to me, needs to be the immediate change. As far as systematically, we need to have more conversations. I thank you for reaching out and saying, you know what, as a white man, I don't know where to begin. I don't know what to say. I don't know. And a lot of people... Uh, upset saying, oh, your white friend's silence says a lot. No, it doesn't. It says that some people like you don't even know how to begin to approach a situation. So we can't be judgmental to if I know somebody like your character, Josh, and you're like, oh my God, I don't even know what to say to these people. Let's say you didn't even have a podcast. And you, you're there and you're, it's like I have a friend who lost both his mother and his grandmother and they're being buried today. I don't know what to say to that person. What can you say that will make them know that I'm here for you. I'm here to have this situation. You can say it, but in those moments, that person is really not, and and, and I'm telling you as someone who has lost family members, all these messages come in and you're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Mm-hmm. To be honest, it, it's, it's afterward, you're like, you know what? I appreciate everyone and I thank you. See who reached out and who, who yeah, there for you. Yeah. But in the moment, there's nothing anyone could really do. To, so I'm, you're struggling. And, and if people would think and relate it to that, we're dealing with that. We're dealing with death of black people at the hands of cops. And someone dies and I'm a white person. And I'm like, I, I, I don't have any... Um, any ill feelings or any ill thoughts. Actually, I'm, I'm, I, I look at all of us as humans and I don't know what to say. We can't judge and we're judging each other. Um, like you, even black people, some people like, yo, you, your silence speaks volumes. I know there are so many people who are affected by this who don't say anything and they don't know what to say because there's, there's no answer right now. It's like, what else can we do? Right? People are frustrated. People are marching. People has been locked up for months. So now these protests, you have more people available than you would have had in a regular uh, economic situation. Mm-hmm. So now people are home. I could protest all night because I have nowhere to be tomorrow. Yeah. You know, or I could come out in the morning and be there all day. It gets me out. People have cabin fever. They've been locked up. They've been frustrated people don't have jobs they don't have income they don't have a source of where their next meal is coming from so the looting and all that stuff as a result of the past few months of what we're going through it's just and then obviously you know there's a, the people that 
uh, plant there who are instigators. Mm -hmm. It's a combination of things. So I, I can't say that, guys, you know what? No looting, no this, no that. There's There are black people that are looting, but there are white people that are looting. So we're here trying to blame each other for shit, but I don't care about that right now. My concern is how are we going to change this situation? Because it's a cycle. I wake up and I saw it and I'm like, damn, this shit again? And it's the same damn cycle. Mm -hmm. I've watched the, Mike, the video of Mike Brown for Latino Castile. All these guys. And then the outcome is, is, is the same thing that happens. Now, some of the cops were prosecuted, but... All right, they prosecuted. But how are you going to change that system? This is a, it's a system because it's like they're just not stopping. Right? It's just not stopping. Well, it's like... And the first if... And I think the underlying thing... Um, for me, I think the sort of one of the unspoken frustrations is that part of the system, I'll say for me in my little, my little, we'll wrap it up here in a, buddy, in a minute, buddy. I don't want to keep yeah, it yeah. too much longer, but like my little experience with the injustices of the system, like I got a parking or I got a uh, emissions check thing. Like my, my sticker wasn't updated or something. Uh, and except it was, I had just moved from Pennsylvania. This, this one of those guys gave me a ticket and it was like 60 bucks and I got pissed and I was like, hey, this – like I just moved from Pennsylvania. This is legal. And he's like, take it up with the courts. Like if if you're right – and I was just like this idea – like when you talked about being pulled over and that cop is like, I'm really sorry. Here's your three tickets. Just go to court. It's like all of a sudden it's on you to prove you did nothing wrong. And that underlying assumption of like if it's happening on emissions checks – tickets that that me i'm being forced i have to go prove that i've done something i've done nothing wrong um and then like why couldn't that cop have just come to you and said listen i'll take care of this like that's all that needed to happen you know damn well he could have torn those up like when cops tell you like i'm sorry i've already started writing the ticket it's like that response is lazy you're just being lazy in that moment because the system is allowing you to be the system has told you once that ticket machine starts going you don't have to do anything They've absolved you of the responsibility. And that radiates all the way up to when you put your knee on someone's neck, if they happen to die, don't sweat it. You know, we'll yeah. figure it out on the back end. And, and then and then the others that just allow it. Like the others allow it. Cops standing and by I while that was a few happening. more friends who are cops in, in, in the NYPD. And, you know, I've spoken, I haven't really directly spoken to any one of them at mm -hmm. this point. Um, but I know one of them put a statement out and I shared it and he's like, you know, it's not okay. Um, I have a white friend who I went to started, he started nursing school with us and he left the last year mm -hmm. or the last semester and he became a cop. Right. And I saw him one year, I think it was Shake Shack downtown Brooklyn had just opened. So mm -hmm. this was fairly recently. And he was like, I saw a bunch of cops come in and, so, hey, Shalom, what's up? Like, yo, you're a cop. He said, yeah, man. He's speaking to me. We're speaking on the side. Took my number. Said, yeah, I'll call you, man. We'll have a chat. There's a white dude. Mm -hmm. He said, Shalom, man, I'm I'm trying to get out of this. I'm like, why? What happened? He said, man, this, this, this system is messed up. The things that he see, mm -hmm. the way they need to police black people, he couldn't live with it. Right? He was seeking a way to expose it with being anonymous he didn't mm -hmm. know how to deal with it yeah so 
Um, systematically, it's a problem. I don't, I, I don't know how to change it. What I could tell my people, though, is that we need to start to vote. That's what I could tell my people. And we, I'm not just talking about the presidential elections and, and people fail to realize, oh, I'm, we, if you vote, you don't vote President uh, Trump. It's, it goes, it's so many more people than Trump that affect exactly what's happening. Mm-hmm. Trump is, is an idiot. He's been an idiot. He's never changed who he is. And a lot of people are mad at Trump. And I, I, I just laugh. I'm, it, to me, it's comedy. It's sad. It's angering. But it's comedy because this man just doesn't care, right? And there are people who support Trump, and I can't tell you who to vote for. And there are reasons some people support Trump because of certain things that he represents as far as uh, policies Mm -hmm. that they align with, right? And they tend to put put aside who the individual is because they're focused on how will this affect my taxes in my community? Mm-hmm. How would this change my conservative views, right? Or my, my conservative way of living, right? So that's what they look at more than this guy's a bigot, he's a racist, whatever the case is. I'm not judging you for that. People who don't vote in those local elections, those little um, senators, those councilmen, councilwomen, these are the important elections that we need to focus on mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, that's where the checks and balances are supposed to come in. Now, when you look at the House and the Senate, that's, that's where we have our biggest issues because that's the biggest divide. And that reflects and it trickles all the way down throughout the country. Well, so politics In terms of representation too, I mean, you've got... Again, like I don't hate the state of Wyoming at all. I don't have any hate in my heart for Wyoming, but it has it's a it's a state with like a hundred thousand people in it. It has two representatives in the Senate. Brooklyn, New York, like the five boroughs has like thirteen million people or something like that. Let's even say it's nine million. I'll underestimate. It's nine million people. Like two senators. That right. doesn't make sense on paper. It I get it. Like, doesn't. you know, like, you know, I understand why people argue about the electoral. I understand your argument, but you can't look me in the eye and say that makes sense. Like, like it's, let's, it's, let's absolutely. <laughs> it's, it's, it's folly. And, and we go back to Gore versus Bush. Gore won the popular vote. Hillary won the popular vote. <laughs> By a long shot. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the little tiny seed of hope for me is that, like, I think we, too, because of social media, have gotten this impression that the country is wildly weighted towards one side. Like, Trump lost by almost, like, three-point-some million votes. Like, it's not a huge landslide, but I do think that the vast majority – and there's a lot of those voters who voted for Obama twice, like, yeah. and turned and switched to Trump. And I think were more anti-Hillary than they were sort of anti-black, you right. know, racist, you know, like – and yeah. now, I don't know, not that I'm confident moving forward by any means, but <laughs> I think I think we on we just need to sort of have a little more confidence about many things. But first and foremost, having these types of conversations. Um, we've been going for about an hour and a half, Sheldon, and I will let yeah, you yeah. go. Um, I know Thanks, that you've got I a family. To work. <laughs> you got to get to work. But, bro, I yeah. really appreciate it. I love you dearly, and I, I am grateful for your time. Thanks for the invite. Have a, have a good one. All right. You too, buddy. Take it easy. All right, bye. Bye. Okay, thanks for listening. Um, It goes without saying that one conversation is not enough to change hardly anything. Um, But for me, it's the way I learn about people. It's the way I learn about my friends. 
It's the way I learn about society is by talking to my friends and asking them questions about their life. And they ask me questions about mine. It's called a conversation. And I am deeply, deeply, deeply indebted to Sheldon for his generosity of time, um, but also his story. Not just here, but in Panyards with me. So Sheldon, thank you. I hope we can do this again soon. I hope everybody out there is taking care of yourself, uh, but also your neighbors uh, and your friends. Love you dearly. We'll talk to you soon.